This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are kicking off Season 5. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I teach at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. And he's a columnist for National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we put a bit of bonus audio or something else on there for you to listen to. You can find out more by going to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. That's patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing Francis effectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to start out talking about all the ways that Donald Trump has been sort of undermining and crippling our government. We're going to talk about Pope Francis's naming of some new cardinals, and then we're going to end the show with a conversation about gun violence. Dan, as always, I'm so happy that you're here. It's great to see you. Welcome back. Thanks, David. Good to be with you. It's great to be starting season five. Yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> it seems like it's not been that long, and yet mm. it has. Yeah. Now, over the summer, you went to Australia. Do I have that right? That is correct. And yes. what were you doing there? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Fighting with some kangaroos. No, I'm just kidding. I saw zero kangaroos, unfortunately. That's one of my very, very few regrets about my time down under. I hope next time, if there is a next time, I have that opportunity. So I, I was there to give a series of lectures and speak at a conference and do some workshops. So it was, it was a work trip. It was a really wonderful experience. Most of my time was spent in the northern part of the country, northeastern part in Brisbane, a beautiful place. And then I was in Melbourne for a few days, giving um, some talks to uh, Catholic school educators there. Uh, back up to Brisbane for a Franciscan educators uh, conference for the whole country. And, and that was really quite extraordinary. It's a very, very small world, David. I was one of two keynote speakers at this three-day conference. The other keynote speaker is a theology professor at the Australian Catholic University named Ed, Dr. Edmund Chia, who, after finishing his PhD at the University of Nijmegen, 
was on the faculty of none other than Catholic Theological Union for about six years. And yeah, he just speaks so highly of it. We've got many, many friends. He had left, he and his wife, to accept faculty positions at ACU just a year or two before I got to Chicago. So we never really overlapped, but it was really cool to, I've met him a couple times in passing at conferences, but to to have that CTU Chicago connection, literally on the other side of the world. So it was great. It's been a busy summer, uh, lots of other things going on, family things, some vacation time, road races, as people who follow me on social media know, as well as uh, co-leading a a pilgrimage, a retreat to the Holy Land with my colleague, Sister Lori Brink, uh, back in May and June. So it's really, it's really been good. Busy summer, and we're ready to start the school year. How are you? I'm good. So uh, speaking of school years, I started full-time teaching at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies, which is going to be a one-year appointment for now. We'll see kind of how it goes, but I'm enjoying that, and I love the students there, so that's been a very blessed occurrence. Also, we bought a house here in Hyde Park. Just a little, just a little <laughs> bit of life news there. Yeah, uh, so we bought a house, and we've been kind of the last few weeks painting and prepping and getting things ready. We, uh, we're going to do a slow move because of some of the circumstances here, and it, it works out well for us to not have to rush to move. We've got some time with where we're staying, and then we can just kind of move things into the new place. So we're very thankful for that, and but always welcome prayers about that. Also, I've been working on some new shows. So I was out in L.A. this summer doing some filming for a television pilot for a show that I'm working on with my friend Rahul Deep Singhil, who teaches out at Cal Lutheran University sort of an Anthony Bourdain-style take on the religions of Los Angeles. And so we're that's nowhere near ready for broadcast yet. It's just in the development stages. We're trying to get networks to take a look at it. But we'll see how that goes. Also, I started a new podcast with my friend Rick Lee James about uh, Mr. Rogers. So it's a Mr. Rogers tribute podcast called Welcome to the Neighborhood. So if you have a chance, that's on all the places that you can find your regular podcasts. And we'd love to have you take a listen to that because it's just fun to to sort of live in the legacy of Fred Rogers. Is that a uh, a limited release sort of thing? Is it a series or is it ongoing? What's what's the, the range of that? Our plan right now, I think, is to do nine episodes, each themed around a certain topic that was important to the work of Mr. Rogers, or if you will, the ministry of Mr. Rogers. So we've talked about patience and kindness, peace, and we're going to be taking each of those themes in turn. And then once that run is done, I'm hoping that we keep going, but I'm not sure what the shape of it will be. Gotcha. Yeah. Looking forward to checking that out. And everybody should subscribe immediately. And things are still going well with your column with National Catholic Reporter. You're you're now firmly in the saddle with that. Yeah, it's been, um, gosh, eight months now. It's hard to believe. I just finished what I think is, well, I just filed this week my 18th column, I think it is. Yeah, just to, just to comment on that for listeners, David at the top of every episode uh, talks about the things that are available for our Patreon supporters. And we're trying a new thing this season, which is every week that I have a column coming out, I'm going to offer you know about a 10 or 15 minute additional column commentary, we might call it, uh, where you get behind the scenes information, additional kind of context, you know, the thought process behind why this topic and, and some of the things that are going on and more of just information about whatever that topic is. So that will be released uh, into the Patreon stream for our supporters right around the time that the column is is uh, released on the alternating Wednesday of every month. Yeah. So if you're listening to this episode now, the first one will have dropped the previous Wednesday. So if you are a Patreon supporter, you've already heard it. And if you're not, it's waiting there for you. And I'm also hoping that I will get a chance to do uh, some similar things like this for my columns for uh, St. Anthony. 
Anthony Messenger, but I'm not as organized as Dan is, so we'll see how that goes. It's all a charade. <laughs> I'm not organized either. <laughs> I just play an organized person on TV. Anything you're looking forward to for the fall? It's going to be, uh, this is going to sound painfully cliche for our listeners who who hear us talk about this, but it's going to be an extraordinarily busy fall for me. And I know I know it is for you too with the, the new full-time job on top of all the other things going on, but I will be actually in and out of the country quite a bit this fall. Just the scheduling of things, the way it worked out was a series of, of conferences and lectures and, and that sort of stuff combined with, uh, you know, normal teaching load and that sort of thing. It's just going to be, it's going to be kind of busy, but um, it's all exciting stuff. So I'm looking forward to all of it. I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, getting back into the classroom. You know, there's a new energy around the school right now as there always is in September when uh, the students are back and all the faculty and, and staff are around. So I'm looking forward to it all. How about you? So I've got some travel too. So my friends at Commonweal are launching a new design for their magazine. And so I'm going to fly to New York and help them celebrate that launch. I've got a couple more conferences and things like that and some work trips coming up later in the fall. I'm just also enjoying the idea of finally settling into a house that we own and getting a chance to make it our own. And later in the fall, my parents-in-law will be moving to Chicago, Kira's parents, my wife's parents. And so that's another blessed thing that's happening is that they have now retired and they're leaving their longtime home outside of Pittsburgh and they're going to be moving here. And having them more in the mix of our lives is going to be a blessed thing. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, let's go ahead and take a break for a moment. And when we come back, we will be into the show. Thank you again for listening. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events, politics, cultural issues, things that are happening in the news, things that should be happening in the news, all from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Back in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan became famous, or, or maybe infamous, for an approach to government that Republicans called a starve the beast. Basically, the idea was to defund and destaff parts of the government that conservatives deemed to be too bloated, inefficient, or morally unnecessary. Fast forward to 2019, and under the Trump administration, we see the Star of the Beast approach on steroids. For example, we are heading into the 2020 election season with the Federal Election Commission, the independent watchdog agency for our elections, basically crippled. According to reports this week, it does not have enough directors appointed to form a quorum, so it cannot legally meet to do its job. This is not an oversight. It's not an accident. It is part of this Star of the Beast philosophy. Another pertinent example is FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration. The Trump White House has diverted at least $155 million intended for FEMA toward enforcement efforts against migrants at the southern border. This decision was made with basically no regard to things like the hurricane season that we have right now, and as we're recording this, actually to the sound of rain and thunder out our window, uh, we're reminded of our friends in the Bahamas and in Florida who are facing a Category 4 hurricane today. So they are in our prayers. David, what should we think about all of this? Well, so I, there's a lot to say about this. And the problem, Dan, is that if you just take one little piece of it, you miss the bigger picture. And that is, it's not just that Trump is diverting money from FEMA to Border Patrol. It's not just that Trump is refusing to appoint directors to organizations. No, if you take all of that in the bigger picture, the whole is more than the sum of those parts. 
And it, it speaks to an entire philosophy about how government should be, or rather how government shouldn't be. Those who are interested in business, those who have business interests, don't want regulation. They don't want government to be efficient in its oversight. And so the whole notion of Starve the Beast that, as you mentioned, has been going on for more than 30 years, is a philosophy that decides to take the teeth out of any kind of regulatory oversight in government. So the interesting thing is, on the one hand, that makes a lot of sense to me and that there are kind of politicos and there are wonky types in the Republican Party and others who are fiscally conservative or pro-big business or libertarian in the way that you're describing who kind of abhor big government, as it were, or government overreach, as they would characterize it. And and to me, uh, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Trump himself, in his immediate kind of cohort of cronies and enablers, don't seem to have a particular strategy. You know, they're not Reagan or George H.W. Bush or even George W. Bush and, and Dick Cheney and company, right? So, you know, when I think of the Trump administration, particularly in its kind of atrophied, lifelong public servants, the way that most administrations have it, th- that is gone more or less now. It's basically Donald Trump, Stephen Miller, and whoever the chief aide to the president is this week. Uh, I mean, how is this working? It's not his ideology. It's not. He's not doing this deliberately, right? So there's a couple of things coming together. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a, an advocate of the kind of deep state paranoia, but I will say this. There are those like Grover Norquist and others who have been invested in this kind of dismantling of government for it's a multi-decade strategy for several players in Washington. I think that Trump has been a convenient foil for those that actually do have a longer term vision, more of a plan. And so Trump's haphazard approach to government, which is very self-serving, kind of nihilistic and narcissistic, that is playing into the hands of those who have for a long time wanted to see basically the Chamber of Commerce and the, and the businesses really kind of rule the roost. There's a piece of this from the catechism that I just want to uh, lift up. And in paragraph 1897, the catechism says, human society can be neither well-ordered nor prosperous unless it has some people invested with legitimate authority to preserve its institutions and to devote themselves as far as is necessary to work and care for the good of all. I think right now what we're seeing is the pronounced opposite of that entire approach in philosophy. There's not a sense of the preservation of institutions, and there is no sense of actually caring for the common weal, the good of the least of these among us. And it speaks to I hate to caricature, but it speaks to the worst aspects of a certain type of conservative approach to government and morality that basically says that we need to have those that are productive be the most sheltered and cared for, and those that are most in danger and vulnerability, they're basically a drag on society. Yeah, that reference to the catechism that you made is a great shorthand for, you know, a fundamental principle in Catholic teaching about the role of government, which is the promotion and protection of the common good. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, everything you're saying is spot on. It reminds me of other areas, too. And and so it is interesting, you know, Trump as the the president of the United States and the head of his party is the sort of figurehead, the, the metonym for everybody who falls under him. So, you know, we say the Trump administration, this Trump administration, that, but you bring up a very good point about the actors behind the scenes that take advantage of the sort of disarray, you know, and and what Trump is doing in, far, in terms of his racist tweets and his fear mongering and all this kind of stuff is in itself worth noting and, and, and critiquing. 
But I think what I hear you saying is that there isn't enough attention to what, you know, when the cat is not necessarily away, the cat is out tweeting and and race baiting, the mice are going to push forward their agenda. Is that what I'm hearing? So there are two things here. We have a bureaucracy in part because there are people who have made their career specializing in certain aspects of oversight. You can debate the worthiness of those areas of oversight. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have a complex regulatory system, it helps to have people who actually understand what they're regulating involved in the regulation. Not just involved in finding loopholes for the regulation, but involved in the actual mechanics of making sure that the regulation works the way that it's intended. And so for a long time at the Department of Energy, which oversees nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, we had a nuclear physicist who was the head of that under the Obama administration. Yeah, who also happened to be a Boston College alum. Go BC. (laughs) Fair enough. But now, you know, we have former Governor Rick Perry as the head of that. And he, he doesn't necessarily demonstrate the full and robust capacities that I would hope someone would need and need to demonstrate if they're going to have command over our energy supply, our, our nuclear arsenal, and those complex sort of pieces that have a lot of details to, to manage. And that doesn't mean that the person at the head has to know every detail, but it means that they have to know how to manage an organization that oversees those kinds of details. So there's a turn away from expertise, first of all, in all of this. So that's one piece of it. There's a a disdain for expertise and and a notion that basically anybody can come in and handle this. The other piece of this is not just kind of neglect, sort of malign neglect. So let's look at diverting money from FEMA to the Border Patrol, to ICE, to those sorts of things. So where some federal agencies are being neglected, other federal agencies are being sharpened to a razor point. And they are being utilized in ways to basically create fear and terror among vulnerable populations. And so we're overproducing authority and expertise in certain areas And we are completely gutting authority and expertise in many areas where, you know, the oversight is not just necessary, but can save lives. And the other thing, too, that's that's striking to me where President Trump does play a very central role is the the politicizing of of all these decisions and the decision-making process. You know, we see this with the, the treatment of the economy, whether it's the trade war with China that is entirely arbitrary, whether it's, you know, the, the kind of social media trolling that he does with world leaders and others. And, of course, what we see both with the diversion of, of funds to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to the border security, which is kind of euphemistic, you know, it's it's as well as the Supreme Court did allow uh, a decision by the administration to take funds from the Pentagon's budget to apply to the building of the border wall, too. It's a, it's a limited amount, but it was still uh, a substantial sum. And, you know, it's it's quite evident when there isn't actually a, a need, there is no need for this, that it's an effort to at least appear like he's making good on his campaign promises on the eve of another presidential election. I saw a report the other day that said there has been zero new addition to the wall on on our southern border. There have been the necessary maintenance and repairs and replacements of places where there is already a wall. Um, But I think this is something that's, that's creating a lot of anxiety for Trump because he cares about one thing, and that's the accolades of his of his base at at rallies. And it's, um, I think, from his political strategist perspective, it's about trying to 
sure up turnout for his vote. And we've seen that play out in a couple other ways, too, with with an eye toward the election, which is the way that Trump wins is that his 35 percent or so base needs to come out excited for him and vote. And basically, everybody else needs to be disinterested and not turn out. Well, you've just said that this is not in Trump's interest, but there's kind of a balance here that's being struck because USA Today and other sources report that these kind of tenuous appointments, so these temporary appointments, we don't have a diplomatic corps right now. We don't have many, many uh, areas of the cabinet are not filled. Trump keeps claiming that this gives him flexibility. And what this actually gives is it gives him a lack of check and balance. It gives him basically a de facto autocracy. That's right. And that's the danger. It's destabilizing, too. Yeah. The thing is, people kept saying and and praying, rightly so, that this doesn't happen. But the, the question is, okay, it's all fun and games, although for many people it really is absolutely not. But for Trump and the, the Trump enablers, and it sounds pretty pejorative. There's a um, you know a former White House staffer and kind of comedian named John Lovett. He has this line that I think is really good, this metaphor where he talks about the kind of Sunday morning talk show pundits and you know the c- conservative columnists for the New York Times and the Post and and you know these other magazines, and he describes them as the Trump's intellectual uh, zambonis that he's creating this mess, and then they come behind him and try to smooth out the ice, and they kind of normalize his ideas and principles and behaviors and everything. The problem is there's no pressure from within the party itself to put him back on track in the ways that you're talking about, to address just the basic function of government. And he's not had to face a a major, well, that's not entirely true. I mean, we saw what happened with the hurricane in Puerto Rico and that mismanagement. We've seen other things like mass shootings, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later in the show. But, you know, what if, God forbid, there was another 9-11 or something, you know, Oklahoma City, something of that degree, uh, another Katrina. And one might argue that what we experience in, in Puerto Rico and what the Puerto Ricans are continuing to deal with is its own version of that. But, you know, something on such a massive scale, and there's nothing there. There's, there's no, as you put it, there are no professionals, no experts, nobody who knows what to do. It's just terrifying, absolutely terrifying to think about. And it's, a, it's an abdication of the responsibility of government. And as, as Christians, as Catholic Christians in particular, like you pointed out, we have a responsibility to, I can't say this enough, and we'll be saying it a lot, I think, this fall and into the spring. We're not one-issue voters. In fact, the church is very clear about that. We need to look at the whole picture. And I think if we think about what sort of administration, what sort of representatives we, we need and we should endorse and vote for, it's people who are going to restore a sense of the common good for all people. Well, and I just want to pick up on that. You mentioned the single-issue voters, and there, there are those both in sort of our fellow Catholics, but also across the, the sort of conservative Christian bulwark that would say, well, but he's delivering on Supreme Court justices, and get out of his way and let him do that. And there are those that liken both within the Catholic and outside the Catholic world Donald Trump to basically a, a, an Old Testament monarch, sort of God's man in the throne at the right time. And for anyone who may be flirting with that kind of notion, I just want to end this part of the conversation with this other piece from the Catechism. This is from paragraph 1904. It's preferable that each power of government be balanced by other powers and by other spheres of responsibility which keep it within its proper bounds. This is the principle of the rule of law in which the law is sovereign and not the arbitrary will of men. 
And I think what we're seeing right now, Dan, is the actions of arbitrary wills of men in powerful places. Men and Betsy DeVos. Men and Betsy DeVos, (laughs) who are running roughshod over the common good. And we need to be prayerfully resistant to that reality. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just to flag, really, we're running low on time in our segment here. But, you know, just a little footnote. Speaking of Betsy DeVos, there's news uh, over the the last couple of days about, you know, an absolute gutting to the Department of Education budget, which is just terrifying when you think about the state of public education, uh, education writ large in the U.S. these days. So that's just one thing to realize that that adds to exactly what we're talking about. The other thing, which is maybe not as interesting or, or headline grabbing in a kind of newsy, sexy sort of way, but this is probably the most important issue we need to be aware of, which is the gutting of EPA regulations and the, and the, the ins, just incessant rollback of environmental protections and any kind of effort that both previous Republican and Democratic presidents have initiated. It's really, really, really bad right now. And this is all going on in the same mechanism, the same way that you're describing in terms of the star of the beast mentality. Well, with that, uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about topics in the news through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. On September 1st, Pope Francis announced at his weekly Sunday Angelus appearance that he would be creating 13 new cardinals next month. This is Pope Francis's sixth consistory. That's the technical term for the ceremony to create the cardinals since he became pope in 2013. The last time he created new cardinals was in November 2018. Ten of the 13 new cardinals will be under the age of 80 and therefore eligible to elect Pope Francis's successor when that time comes either at the pope's voluntary retirement or at his death. The other three that are over 80 years old are made cardinals as an honor and in recognition for their lifelong ministry and contributions. They will not be eligible to vote in the next conclave. There are some notable features of this latest class of soon-to-be cardinals. First, there was one non-bishop named. Jesuit Father Michael Zerny, and I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly, he's a native of Czechoslovakia who emigrated to Canada as a child and has served in the Vatican office for aiding migrants and refugees since 2017. Second, Pope Francis continues his efforts to have the College of Cardinals reflect the world church more and the northern hemisphere less, namely North America and Western Europe. There are zero new American cardinals, and those few from Europe are either Vatican officials or are over the eligibility age to vote in the next conclave. The majority are from countries including Indonesia, Cuba, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Morocco, and Guatemala. Third, as National Catholic Reporter reports, Pope Francis has put a lot of stock in members of religious orders. Quote, eight are members of congregations, including three Jesuits, a missionary of Africa, a Comboni missionary, a Salesian of Don Bosco, a Capuchin Franciscan, and a poor servant of divine providence, unquote. And fourth, this year, in the case of Guatemala Bishop Alvaro Ramazzini Imeri, as in the earlier case of the auxiliary bishop from El Salvador, Pope Francis has passed over major metropolitan archdioceses and other well-known and powerful church leaders to elevate relatively unknown and often rural church leaders who are serving the poor and advocating for the marginalized. So, 
What does this tell us about Pope Francis, Dan, about a strategy, if anything, for shaping the election of the next pope, about the future of the church's leadership? What are we seeing here? Well, I think, first of all, what we're seeing is that Pope Francis is being kind of intellectually and morally consistent, which is which is great. He famously, when, was, when he was elected Bishop of Rome, the next day, in effect, explained to Vatican officials and, and by extension, the whole world that he wanted a poor church for the poor. That's why, in part, he took his name Francis after Francis of Assisi, and and he's living up to that. He's also somebody who sees ministry and accompaniment and pastoral outreach, particularly to those who are poor or, as Vatican II points it, in any other way afflicted, as the centerpiece, the heart of the church. In the past, I mean, it's it's not uncommon for bureaucrats, basically, to make up the majority of the College of Cardinals. And so they're bureaucrats of two sorts. You have the office workers and the general curia who kind of climb their way up the official ladder of these different staffs and and maybe become secretary or prefect of a congregation in the Vatican. And those tend to be pro forma archbishoprics or cardinalate appointments so that the, the prefect, for instance, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith is always a cardinal. And so if you're named that that office, you will be made a cardinal, that kind of thing. Um, the other way is um, working your way up as, you know, somebody who becomes a bishop of a small diocese, and then you move to a bigger diocese, and you move to one of these major metropolitan archdioceses like Washington, like Chicago, like Madrid, this sort of thing. And it has been customary in the past that those would become sort of pro forma cardinalates as well, that if you're the archbishop of Washington, de facto, you become a cardinal, at some point at least. And what we see, case in point, with this announcement of 13 new cardinals is that we have a new Archbishop of Washington who was not included in the list. I don't think that was a jab at uh, uh, Wilton Gregory by any means. I don't think it was. But I do think it's important to recognize that Pope Francis's kind of calculus for who he's going to have at the highest position of authority of advice, of planning, and ultimately the ones who determine who the next bishop of Rome is, who the next pope is, are not just people who have worked their way up a ladder, even if that wasn't their intention. But he's very deliberate about who's going to be in that group. So let me ask then the cynical question, because there are those that see Pope Francis as mainly involving himself in political machinations and trying to sort of undermine a perceived trajectory that goes through maybe St. Pope John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And so is this purely just stacking the College of Cardinals to ensure politically that a certain type of pope will be elected? Or do you see a more holy purpose to this? Oh, man, good question. I think certainly the latter. It's certainly a holy purpose. And I think that's first and foremost the issue. Pope Francis is, when he's looking at candidates for the College of Cardinals, He's not. I don't think he's putting politics first. I think he's he's redefining the job description for what it mean. What does it mean to be a cardinal? And we'll see less and less. And we have seen less and less over the last you know six seven years of again the kind of yes men bureaucrats managers. And what we see are pastoral leaders, servant leaders. So on, on the first point, I think it really is a, a working of the spirit. I think it's it's a strong message because it goes from the top down. You know, who are the people who have the highest sort of level of public presence and platform? Well, in the church after the pope, it's it's the 120 cardinals who elect the next pope. So that's really significant. 
Now, indirectly, it is a political thing too, for for sure. Because politics, you know, and I I don't think it's necessarily cynical. I mean, to redefine it in a sense or to to refresh our understanding for our listeners of politics. I mean, anytime you have people, human beings together organizing themselves, that's politics. And so there's a political dimension to this. Pope Francis, after October 5th, will have appointed – will have created – that's the technical phrase, you create a cardinal – will have created more than half of the electors of the next pope. So he has a a clear kind of imprint there, a clear sort of uh, presence in in that making. But to your question about is is he stacking the deck or something like that, here's the interesting thing about the conclave is that the Holy Spirit, we believe, is actually the one who selects the pope. Now – the Holy Spirit can be resisted. The Holy Spirit could be ignored at times. But I'll just say this, that oftentimes you have, you know, for instance, the, the conclave, the collection of cardinals that elected Pope Francis included many of the cardinals that have been vocally opposed to him too. In other words, and they were all cardinals that, including himself, he was made a cardinal by John Paul II, and 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 then you have Benedict XVI too. So, I mean, the composition of the people in that room were created by these other popes who, as you, I think, rightly point out, had a different understanding of church governance and maybe a different kind of worldview, uh, I should say, continues in the case of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. He's not dead yet. Well, and so one of the things about that, to speak about that worldview, would be a sense of the majesty of the church versus the ministry of the church, the notion of grandeur versus servanthood. And I think that, you know, when you look at the visuals of, say, a mass led by Pope Benedict XVI versus a mass led by Pope Francis, you immediately see a stark contrast in terms of just the the heraldry of the papacy. And that, I think, speaks to a, the kind of philosophical shift that you're talking about. When you use this phrase, a poor church for the poor, one of the cardinals that is going to be created is Archbishop Matteo Zuppi, who's known as the priest of the streets. I mean, and he's typical of the kind of people that we're talking about, people that are involved in ministry to the least of these among us, even though they are in high-ranking positions in the church. And I think that speaks a lot to the kind of philosophy of incarnation that Pope Francis is trying to bring forward here. Well, I think the example of Archbishop Zuppi is is another one, too, that signals some of the priorities of of pastoral ministry, of walking in the footprints of Christ, of serving those who are at the margins in society over against sort of ideological positions that would be aligned with those who, again, are most resistant to Pope Francis's constantly turning back to the gospel. Archbishop Zuppi, the Archbishop of Bologna, is one who also is known for his pastoral sensitivity to LGBTQ people, and he wrote the foreword to the Italian uh, edition of uh, Father James Martin, friend of the podcast's uh, book, Building a Bridge. I think it's interesting, too, to see one of the other archbishops that Pope Francis just recently named as the Archbishop of Luxembourg, Jean-Claude Hollerich, uh, happens to be a Jesuit. But what, one of the things he's best known for in Europe is that he is a vocal critic of the rise of populist nationalism in Europe and has gone after people publicly like Steve Bannon and President Trump and, and Boris Johnson and so forth and have decried that sort of attitude, that sort of behavior. So, I mean, you're looking at this and you're like, okay, so we see a bit of how uh, Pope Francis understands what leadership in the church should look like. A dear friend of mine from down in Memphis, uh, Father Bruce Trinkergrani, once made the observation that Pope Francis is really 
the first pope who was completely formed in his priesthood under Vatican II. Are we now seeing the fruits of that in terms of the College of Cardinals as well as the composition now of the College of Cardinals beginning to reflect some of the philosophical shift that we saw at the Second Vatican Council of a, of a more global church? You know, I, it's interesting. Yes and no. Jain in German, right? Yeah. Yes and no. Because there are a lot of people who've been formed in the time since the council, people my age, people your age, who, for whatever reason, don't align themselves with what you're describing in terms of a shift in philosophy, a turn to the world and so forth. And actually, you know, oftentimes, you know, idealize a past time, a medieval sense of high liturgy or something, which obviously they have no personal experience of, but they romanticize it nonetheless. We're waving to our three traditional Latin mass listeners right now. <laughs> do we have that many? I'm sure we do. I don't sure. know. Anyways, um, you're welcome to listen as well. Everybody is. But I think, you know, I heard it described actually over the summer at one of these things, I think it was in the, one of the conferences in Australia, where, where another speaker t- said, and I thought this was well put, we are no longer in a post-Vatican II era. We are in a post post-Vatican II era. And we're not entirely sure what that looks like yet. You know, we're more than 50 years out now from the council. And the truth is, as a theologian, and you're a theologian, I mean, from my professional perspective, I would say that we still have not really begun. We've just hit, you know, cliche-wise, the tip of the iceberg of the richness, of the depth, of the possibilities of what the Spirit presented to the church and world at the council. And so, what does it look like in the immediate aftermath of Vatican II? Well, there are all the horror stories that people like to rehearse about theology, about liturgy, about this, that, and the other. I'm hoping we're at a point now in a post, post-Vatican post II era that we can start to really kind of grow into the vision of wor- church and world that the Spirit sort of uh, guide, you know, guided us into. So with Pope Francis, I think I think he is emblematic of that on the one hand. But I think what Pope Francis, you know, he he's not monolithic in a way. You know, he, he he's kind of eclectic in his his theology and his outlook. And I think that's important to realize too. For him, and in this way, if I may, as a Franciscan, I think he really is living up to his namesake that is following Francis of Assisi. Because one thing Francis of Assisi one thing that really governed him and Claire Vassisi, for that matter, his whole worldview and way of life was that the gospel comes first. That before loyalty to anything else, you know, they were both very obedient to the Pope and to the local bishop and to the hierarchical church and to the church tradition and so forth. But if at any point any of those things conflicted with what Jesus did or said or commanded in the gospel, then the gospel won out. And I think Pope Francis is radical in that way, as in, you know, going back to the roots, the radux, right? Going back to what is the root of our Christian life, it's the gospel. So I think when we look at something like him selecting these different men to be created cardinals, he's going back to the gospel. Who is, in today's day and age, living that gospel message most authentically, most seriously, And I don't think he has patience or time for people like, and I'm just going to say the name, you know, Cardinal Burke. And Cardinal Burke and people who aspire to be like Cardinal Burke, who enjoy getting dressed up in fancy things and view their place in the church and world as judge of others, they're very upset about that. There's a loss of power. And and I think 
I don't know. I'm kind of going on. A, I'm on a soapbox here, going on a tirade. But. Well, you you mentioned the Gospels, and there's there's the Gospel story where the banquet is being held, and all of those who live in finery are invited, and they di- they disdain to come, and so instead those are welcomed who are basically the riffraff from the streets. What I like about this new College of Cardinals, and this is just my take, this is by no means magisterial, but it's a, it's, it's a riffraff college. And but what I mean by that is like, you know, the traditional appointments like the, the Archbishop of Philadelphia got a pass this time in favor of someone from a much smaller third world uh, municipality. And that's an important message, I think. It's an important message about what the church's priorities are. But it's also a gospel-oriented reversal of expectations, and that continues to be what I what I esteem, and that continues to be what I love about Pope Francis is these gospel-centered reversals of expectation. I think one other thing too, it's worth highlighting um, before we uh, take our break is is his prioritization too of interreligious dialogue, particularly outreach to our Muslim sisters and brothers. Again, living up to the namesake of Francis of Assisi, who 800 years ago had that very powerful, peaceful encounter with Sultan Malachi Hamil and Damietta Egypt in 1219. To illustrate this, you know, one of the newly named cardinals is uh, is an archbishop from Morocco. It's a highly Muslim country, percentage-wise. There are only 23,000 Catholics in this archdiocese. So it is tiny, 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 and illustrates exactly your point. And one of the—actually, it was a British bishop who's being named a cardinal. He's over 80, so it's really an honorific. It's really a, a, a kind of to signal a, a sense of gratitude for his work. It was somebody who headed up the Muslim-Christian inter-religious dialogue in the Vatican offices under John Paul II and then Benedict XVI under his pontificate, this British archbishop was removed. He's just been working in a parish in, in Liverpool, England, and was totally thrown off guard. You know, he's a retired bishop. He's just helping out, you know, with the parish and so forth. Uh, it's His response, like so many of the responses of these uh, newly named cardinals, is is really funny because they, they're the last people to expect to be named a cardinal, and yet isn't that exactly the point? But this is a signal, too, it seems to me, along with the Moroccan archbishops being named, of Pope Francis's and his recent, you know, that historic visit to the to the Middle East, I think it's it's a sign too of how we see our brotherhood and sisterhood as children of Abraham, and that gets so easily overlooked, particularly when we look at the rise of European and North American populism, nationalism, xenophobia, Islamophobia. So I think this is all very exciting, and it's it's worth celebrating. Absolutely. Well, and with that, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to the Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, well, you know the routine. I hate that we have to talk about this again, but here we are. Eight months in to 2019, and we have had more mass shootings and more deaths Uh, than we had the entire year of 2018. And 2018 was by no means a light year. On August 3rd, the USCCB, that's the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, issued a statement condemning gun violence and calling for, quote, effective legislation that addresses why these unimaginable and repeated occurrences of murderous gun violence continue to take place in our communities, unquote. 
we're glad the bishops are speaking out. It's good that the bishops are speaking out. What is not so good about the statement, however, is that once again, the wording is too general and very much in the passive voice. It's kind of rings echoes of the statement on racism from last fall. The statement says, quote, something remains fundamentally evil in our society when locations where people congregate to engage in the everyday activities of life can, without warning, become scenes of violence and contempt for human life, unquote. The point is that these fundamental evils in our society have names. They are linked to policies and organizations that have names, and they should be named. The USCCB issues fact sheets in which they explicitly named Planned Parenthood, for example, in the context of identifying abortion as an evil. Perhaps the time has come for them to start explicitly naming the NRA, the National Rifle Association, as well. What do you think, David? Well, I I couldn't agree more, and this just rings back to something that I've said several times on the show, and that when my wife, Kira, was an editor at U.S. Catholic Magazine, Anytime that anything had to do with women's health or with abortion, the USCCB would immediately issue a statement and she'd get a fax. Anytime that there was something like a mass shooting or or some other thing that wasn't directly tied to abortion, there was a ringing silence. And in fact, you know, friend of the show, Father James Martin, has also pointed out that one of the things that kind of galvanized him around supporting those that are same-sex attracted within the church was the fact that after shootings that were directly targeted at gay people, there was no call from the bishops for solidarity. There was no explicit naming of what of what the problem was. And so with all of that, I mean, I think that, that one of the things that is important here is that this statement, while I appreciate the fact that the, the bishops are making the statement, it's not enough to simply vaguely say at this point, you know, years into this crisis, it's not enough to vaguely say, oh, there are problems. We now kind of know where the locus of the problems are. It's not mental health issues. It's not, it's, it is the fact that we have access to firearms at a rate that people have access to water, you yeah. know, and in, in some cases, firearms are less regulated than the water that we drink. No, certainly, yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it's, yeah, it's just it is it's it's terrible that we have to keep talking about this, but I think I think it's important for us to name in the spirit of naming things the incongruous balance or lack thereof of of naming. You know, the example of course is planned parenthood within the context of abortion, but there are other other names that go unspoken. For instance, this was a, a, a long Twitter thread that uh, Michael Baer, who's a, a, a lay pastoral associate at a parish here in Chicago, tweeted out, and so glad that he did, where he went through and looked at the press releases of the USCCB during the Obama administration and counted how many times the bishops named President Obama or the Obama administration by name with things they didn't like, including the Affordable Care Act, including a, a number of other policies. And they have not mentioned Trump or the Trump administration at all when it comes to things like racism. We can think back to the activities, is it Char Charlottesville, mm -hmm. where you have, you know, Trump saying that they're good people on both sides and so forth. When we see things like immigration or border issues, we see things like, for instance, shootings here at the NRA not being named, but also the Trump administration, its policies not being named. And so, you know, it's, it's striking to see that contrast. And what it suggests to me is that far too many of the U.S. bishops have adopted wholesale Republican talking points and ideology, that they're uncomfortable naming those 
people out or naming those organizations out explicitly because, because why? Because here are my hypotheses, right? One is because they actually agree and are, are kind of bonus Republican politicos, as it were. One is that it's a, it's a material issue in terms of economic fundraising and that a lot of the big money that goes into supporting uh, Republican politicians and organizations and think tanks also go to support the projects and agendas, dioceses, and, and other interests of, of many of these bishops. I think part of it, too, is, you know, just fear, lack of courage. And this goes back to something that I find myself talking about a lot, and, and we've talked about it before, I've, I've written about it, what I call Holy Spirit atheism, that I think a lot of these bishops have forgotten that the Spirit is the one who actually is, is guiding the church and leading the church. And instead of listening to the Holy Spirit and being courageous about speaking the truth of the circumstances of our time, uh, they, they choose silence or they, they pick something where they can have political and, and, and collective social cover. Well, and I'm just mindful that, you know, back during the passage of the Affordable Care Act, when I was teaching theology down in Memphis, I was invited by a parish to come and participate in a fortnight for freedom, and these meetings happened all over the nation, and in fact, bishops were encouraging these kinds of public dialogues to be a kind of act of resistance against certain aspects of the ACA. I would love to see a fortnight for freedom from gun violence. I would love to see a fortnight. I would love to see a fortnight of prayer and robust discussion like we had that evening because I don't think they, I don't think they quite knew what they were getting when they invited me to come and speak because I spoke out on behalf of socialism. I spoke out on behalf of Medicare for all. I spoke out on behalf of universal health care. I don't think that they were prepared for that. But I would love to see that kind of robust dialogue and debate around these issues as well. Well, two thoughts on that. One is, um, I remember that time very well. I was actually a newly ordained priest, you know, around that time um, and, and just before that as well. And so, you know, part of the thing that's frustrating and, and I find deeply insulting actually about that whole Fortnite for Freedom was the way that people were crying in particular, you know, the Fortnite for Freedom idea came from Archbishop Laurie of, of Baltimore. He kind of spearheaded that for the USCCB. And, and it was to me kind of idol worship, this idea of religious liberty was what they were claiming is at stake. And I find that deeply insulting because there are, are women and men around the world for whom religious liberty is a really a matter of life or death. Nobody was infringing on those bishops or on those Catholics or on any Christian in the United States' ability to exercise their religious tradition and to worship as they feel fit. To, so to, to mask it in that, I find duplicitous. Um, I find it very disingenuous. I find it insulting, particularly on behalf of all those modern-day martyrs who, you know, who risk their lives to practice their their faith. So, you know, I'll just be very blunt about that. I, I don't see it as an invitation to dialogue, you know, in any kind of real sense. But I do, I do endorse your point, which is, wouldn't it be nice to have the mobilization of some kind of prayer vigil, some kind of novena akin to what they were doing in that political charade, you know, back during the Affordable Care Act passage? And, and you know, and it's true that there aren't – we're not without – some exceptions to the rule. So I think back to the ACA passage 
And you have, you know, uh, Sister Carol, who was the uh, a daughter of charity, who was the head of the Catholic Health Association, who was really a, a voice of reason and of truth, who came out in, in favor of the Affordable Care Act and explained why from a, a healthcare perspective and a medical perspective, all the benefits of it. You know, she wasn't saying abortion is great, all these kinds of things or birth control, et cetera, et cetera. She was just saying that, you know, um, again, I feel like this is like cliche hour with you today because I just keep coming up with these terrible cliches. But, you know, basically pointing out that what the bishops were calling for and fighting against President Obama, his administration and Affordable Care Act was that they were throwing the the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there are those exceptions. And I would say people like our own Cardinal Supich here in Chicago is an exception to that rule, too. He's a religious leader who regularly uh, draws attention to the gun violence and to, you know, issues here in his church, the Church of Chicago. Can there be more? There certainly can be. Could it be on the national level? I think there needs to be. Well, and you just pointed out the fact. I mean, I live here on the south side of Chicago. You live here on the south side of Chicago. Nationally, people point to our geography as a different kind of take on this gun violence problem because we have rampant gun violence on the south side of Chicago. When we're talking about the kind of mass violence that's happening around us here on Chicago's south side, that is both related to and not related to the kind of gun violence that we're talking about in these in these sort of mass shooting events where we have a, a lone gunman going in with massive armaments doing damage in a in a municipal area. Well, I mean, if if I can, I just yes and no. I mean, the number one sort of victim of gun violence in certain neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, and I, I actually object to the idea of rampant gun violence because. You know, I, I know what you mean, and I know that that's the perception, but but it's, it's much more complicated than that. It really is isolated, and I'm not saying that as a good thing. What I'm saying is that today, as school begins here in Chicago, there are little kids who are walking to school in what is effectively a war zone. And so for them, it is the public square. It is the municipal places that you're talking about. And so it's not to lessen what happens in places like Texas or Dayton or something like that when we have shootings at a Walmart or, you know, outside a strip mall or something like that. But I think they are more comparable. The difference is the violence that takes place in, the south, in some of the neighborhoods in the south side of Chicago is violence typically that affects people of color in their day-to-day life. And and it's, you know, it, it. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that other than it gets erased, which I hear you saying. I know that's why you're bringing it well, up. Well, and I'm also bringing it up to, to make this point, and that is oftentimes Chicago gets pointed to because Chicago, the municipal area of Chicago, has very strict handgun laws and very strict restrictions. And people say, see, you have handgun laws, but you still have all this violence on the south side of Chicago, failing to account for the fact that there's a porous border with Gary, Indiana, and other areas in Indiana where there is not that same kind of regulation on firearms. And so what I'm trying to speak to is that this is not a problem that can be solved on a location-by-location basis. My suggestion is that we are looking at a we're in need of a common solution nationwide to this. And part of it has to do with just the sheer accessibility of guns so that even when municipalities want to regulate and control firearm usage for the safety of their citizens, it can't be controlled because of the of the, the porousness where other municipalities can very easily suddenly just become havens for people to go and get guns and bring them in. That it's the worst of all possible worlds right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Washington, D.C. is another example of that, too. You know, it's it's situated right next to Virginia and West Virginia. 
that have very, very, relatively speaking, lax gun laws. And you're right, it's a red herring when people who want to promote just the the free availability of, of firearms say, well, look at Chicago, look at Washington, look at New York City. You know, they have these strict gun laws and yet they still have gun violence. You're like, well, your point, David, is spot on. It's like, well, of course they do. Because there are, you know, you don't have to go through a metal detector when you go through the Lincoln Tunnel into New York City. It's a 40-minute drive or less to the border of Wisconsin, north of Chicago. And you're right, it's a 10-minute drive from where we're sitting right now to go over the border into Indiana. Um, And those two states have very, very lax gun laws. Indiana, thanks to Vice President Mike Pence. Wisconsin, thanks to the gutting of uh, Scott Walker and, and his administration after a number of years as well. So you're you're exactly right. It's a national issue. I think we need to put a name to it too, which is for all of the USCCB's naming of Planned Parenthood, which among its services includes abortion. That's one of the things, and that drives me nuts too, because as Planned Parenthood rightly says, and again, I'm not supporting, you know, don't mishear me, listeners. What I'm saying is that we need to be careful about particularly how things are named so that Planned Parenthood also provides healthcare services that are not related to abortion or even to, ironically given the name, family planning, but, you know, mammograms and cancer screenings and all these other kind of resources. So that's really important to realize. So as that kind of demonization is is happening very, very clearly by the USCCB, you're right. We don't have the same sort of naming of of gun policies and, and the NRA and, and these sorts of things by name. And that is a problem. Do you think it's an economic issue? Do you think that bishops are afraid to name it because they know that certain donors to dioceses, certain people that help to support ministries of the church will turn away if they explicitly name it, or am I being too cynical? No, I I, I mentioned that earlier in my among the three hypotheses. I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a part of it. I, I think it's. I don't know to what extent, uh, but I think it certainly is. You know, but going back just a moment to the naming thing, I, I forgot to mention this because I got I, I get so worked up about this, and and I know you do too. This is something that is is deeply frustrating and upsetting. But what I wanted to say was that the, the bishops need to practice what they preach about life, that gun violence is a life issue, and that it's a complex intersectional life issue. And and to use whether it's ma- you know mass shootings in various parts of the country on the one hand or whether it's regular threats of violence in places like certain neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, there, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. That violence is due to redlining and uh, economic deprivation, to the lack of possibilities, to the lack of economic and social resources. And oftentimes, people who are involved in activities that lead to gun violence on a day-to-day basis are there because they feel they have no other choice. They're effectively pushed into it and have no opportunity to escape it. It's a different situation with the kind of mass shootings. It's it's complicated and nuanced in its own way. But the, there's one common denominator, as, as we both have said already, which is the guns. I, I had this conversation with a friend the other day. We were talking about, you know, again, I think it was just over the weekend, there was a, a New York Times alert on my phone, another shooting in Texas. And it just occurred to me, I said, I'm actually somebody who's very much in favor or at least not opposed to the repeal of the Second Amendment. You know, uh, I have no problem eliminating that altogether. But I do realize that that is a fool's errand in the United States. 
given the way that guns have played a certain role in the culture and so on. But I do think there's there's a compromise. There's nothing in the con- that's unconstitutional that says that you can't limit the number of guns people have. Everyone has a right to bear arms. One. <laughs> what if the law, the federal law was you can have one gun? One. Everybody gets one who wants one. I think that would make a big difference. Yeah, I'm, I've heard that, and I've also heard about the regulation of ammunition, since ammunition is not mentioned in the Second Amendment. There are many ways to try and go about this. I'm fearful that any attempt to go about this will be met with massive resistance on the part of the—and let's, let's name it again. It's not individuals that want to bear arms that we really have the problem with. It's the massive gun lobby— that makes this an absolutist argument and pours millions of dollars and public relations firms are thrown towards the public message that somehow any infringement upon or any any limitation upon this right to bear arms is somehow totalitarianism. That's what needs to be named is, is this, this idolatry of fiat gun ownership, this idolatry of of the notion that somehow we will be safe if we just have one more firearm. Yeah, ironically, of course, the studies all show that you're you're more likely to be harmed by your own guns, home accidents, suicide, these sorts of things, than you are by somebody else's. And so the more guns you have in the house, the more firearms you have, the more likely you are to be a victim of gun violence at your own hand or by some other domestic uh, hand. Yeah, and, and just to echo uh, a theme that, that got talked about earlier in the conversation when we were talking about the papacy of Pope Francis. So there are some who will point to the fact that, yes, the Bible does in certain places, seem to support the idea of self-defense. Let's grant that. But let's also look at what the gospel says. And in Matthew 26, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. And so our Lord and Savior told Peter, our first pope, to put down his armaments and to live a different way. Can we be brave enough to do the same? That's the question. It sure is. And and let's also look, I mean, the tradition supports that too. Uh, St. Augustine, who is really the kind of the first major systematic thinker around the idea of just war as, as the Roman Empire was becoming the Roman Christian Empire in the fourth century, you know, famously writes about the two cities, the city of God and the city of man and so forth. He nevertheless says that it's better for you to die than to kill somebody else in self-defense. You know, that changes 800 years later by the time you get to Thomas Aquinas, who's dealt with the idea of, uh, you know, the Christendom and the, the whole merger of, the, of, of state and religion and starts to suggest that self-defense is, is justifiable. So you can, you can argue it both ways, but I'm like, I'm always, I always feel pretty good when I think about the fact that, like you named, Jesus was pretty clear on this matter. He demonstrated it with his own life, too. He didn't fight, you know, put up resistance or, or where he could have, you know— smote all those people, <laughs> as it were. And, and Augustine, too, I think, makes a good point, even though he was very willing to think about certain compromises around violence of state um, and, and so forth. So I, I, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I think you're exactly right. Well, this has been a good discussion, and I'm so glad to be back with you, Dan. Thanks for being here, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Please do stay with us. This has been The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. 
The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We are production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program either, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have four seasons worth of episodes for you to check out. Thank you for listening. <laughs>